Now, I know this is probably a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Have you ever found yourself way over your head in something that you thought you could handle? Some of us are going, you know, I go through life that way, you're thinking. Every day of my life feels that way, maybe. Well, in the first story that we'll be looking at today, the disciples are going to find themselves in a situation where they're way over their heads. The disciples, they have watched their master, Jesus, exercise power over the spiritual realm many times. They have even done it themselves under his direction in the past. So how hard can it be to do it again when he isn't around? Well, a famous movie line comes to mind. A man's got to know his limitations. Well, let's flip over to Matthew chapter 17, and we'll begin reading in verse 14. Uh, That's where we're picking up our study this morning. Matthew 17, verse 14. We're picking up the story immediately following the events that we looked at last time in Matthew 17, the first 13 verses. Last time, you might remember if you were here, we read about what has come to be called the transfiguration, the mysterious event that took place on a mountain where Jesus had brought Peter, James, and John with him. It says Jesus' appearance was transfigured or changed. His appearance was described as shining like the sun, and his clothes were white as the light. And then Moses and Elijah were seen actually talking with Jesus. It was an amazing event, which left the three disciples in a state of shock and euphoria. The transfiguration was kind of like the Wizard of Oz in reverse we talked about. In the Wizard of Oz, the curtain was pulled back to reveal this little old man pulling some levers and pushing some buttons to create this huge, terrifying, godlike representation through the use of special effects. In the transfiguration, we have the glory of the eternal God shining through the human shroud or curtain, giving us a glimpse of the majesty and the power of God the Son, Jesus Christ. In the Wizard of Oz, we see that the truth behind the wizard was just a man. In the transfiguration, we see that the truth behind the man, Jesus, is the glorious almighty God that he is. Well, following the transfiguration event, Jesus and the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, they headed back down the mountain to rejoin the other disciples. As they are making their way down, they see a large crowd gathered around the other disciples. And in verse 14, it says, When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. This father of this boy, he kneels before Jesus and he asks him to help his son. On the surface, the condition of the boy that's being described here, it sounds like a severe case of epilepsy. However, as indicated in verse 18, and further described in Mark's telling of the story, this is a demonic possession case. And the demon has been deliberately causing this boy to fall into water and into fire, attempting to kill him. The father says to Jesus in verse 16, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. 
That remark must have landed with a resounding thud. When the nine disciples see Jesus arriving on the scene, they are probably disappointed and relieved at the same time. They had hoped to smooth this little problem over before Jesus got back. They had hoped to be able to report to Jesus another successful exorcism, boss. But that wasn't happening. The disciples have found themselves in a situation way over their heads. So they are also relieved that Jesus is back to fix things. Taking into account the added detail that Mark's telling of this story provides, I'd like to speculate just a little about how the disciples got themselves into this pickle while Jesus was gone. Earlier in Matthew chapter 10, the disciples had been sent out by Jesus with authority and power to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And they had enjoyed great success. The Lord had used them powerfully to help people. Well, now, while Jesus is gone up the mountain with the other three disciples, a man brings his boy to have Jesus heal him. Well, unfortunately, Jesus isn't available. He's out, and we're not sure when he'll be back. The nine disciples, they huddle up with each other, and they say something like, now we've done this stuff before. We can handle it. Let's give it a go. So they say to the man, we realize you came to see Jesus, but he isn't here. He's left us in charge while he's gone. Not to worry. You're in good hands. We are experienced exorcists ourselves. We have done this before. Bring the boy over and we will take care of him. So the father brings his boy over to the disciples. They go through the motions and they say all of the words that they had said in the past when they had performed exorcisms. But nothing happens. They do it all again, and again nothing happens. They do it again, and nothing happens. And they're looking at each other. What's wrong? What, what's happening? I mean, it worked before. Why isn't it working this time? And it must have been one of the most awkward moments that these disciples have ever experienced in their life because everyone in this crowd, I'm sure, is rolling their eyes at them and shaking their heads. This story creates a contrast appearing right after the story of the transfiguration. The transfiguration story, it highlights the glory and the power of God shining through the humanity of Jesus. And this story, in contrast, it shows the utter inability and ineffectiveness of humanity to exercise any real control over the spirit world without the aid and the power of God. So in verse 17, Jesus he says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Based on Jesus' words and reaction here, he fully expected his disciples to be able to handle this situation. But they 
still don't understand who Jesus is, who they are, and the relationship that they must maintain with Jesus. And you know, that is the same problem for us in our day, isn't it? We lose sight of who Jesus is, who we are, and the relationship that we need to maintain with him. See, in this brief time that Jesus was away, the disciples had slipped into an attitude of self-based confidence and relying on past success rather than a constant reliance on and relationship with the Lord. The disciples are now learning a painful lesson through their failure. Relying on past success rather than relying on an in-the-moment connection with the Lord, it's a danger for us too, isn't it? We need a continual flow of fresh power from our power source in order to experience the kind of life that the Lord intends for us and to do the things that He has for us to do. We're kind of like rechargeable batteries. As long as we are plugged into the power source, we always have ample juice to meet the demands that come into our life. But when we drift away and we begin to rely on our own self for power, troubles begin to develop. At first, everything may look fine because we're operating on that residual power that's stored up in our battery, but there's nothing to replenish that power. So it eventually drains away and then we have problems. Everything comes to a stop and it starts crashing down around us. In John 15, Verse 4 and 5, Jesus said, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In the same way that a branch can't produce fruit if it's separated from the trunk of the vine, so we can't produce fruit if we're separated from Jesus Christ. The Greek word translated remain or abide here is meno, which means to stay in, to be connected to, to live in. Think about how a living branch is connected to and is living in the trunk of the vine. That's how we need to be connected to living in rooted into Jesus Christ, drawing our life energy from Him. Well, how do we do that? Well, through every means available to us for growing and strengthening our relationship with Him. Prayer, reading the Bible, getting uh, teaching at church, worshiping the Lord, participating in Bible study with others, reading books about the Lord, talking about the Lord with others, sharing life together with other followers of Jesus, involving the Lord in every area of our life. Philippians 4.13, Paul wrote, I can do all things through him, Jesus Christ, who gives me strength. Jesus Christ is the one who gave Paul strength to do everything that he was called upon to do. He didn't draw upon some residual energy within himself. He drew upon the power of Jesus that came through his connection with Jesus abiding in Jesus like a branch abiding in the trunk of the vine. The power we need to live a 
Jesus' honoring life comes through our relationship with Jesus. And that power comes not as a one-and-done kind of thing, but as a continual flow from Him to us. Verse 19 says, Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? And He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there. and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. The disciples, they want to know why they couldn't drive the demon out. They had been given authority and power over evil spirits back in Matthew chapter 10, and they had successfully cast out demons. So what was the problem now? Jesus says, because you have so little faith, Translating the Greek into English as little faith is potentially misleading here. It doesn't refer, or uh, it's not referring to the quantity or the size of faith, but to the quality of faith. A better translation might be to say poor faith or inadequate faith, uh, misplaced and misdirected faith. Jesus says in the next Sentence that if we have faith as small as a mustard seed, we can move a mountain. So obviously the term little faith doesn't refer to the amount of faith or the size of faith, but to the kind or the quality of faith. The disciples had their confidence in the wrong thing. They had faith in the wrong thing. They apparently thought that their possessing this power that they needed was like a thing once given, then you have it. They figured it was now something inherent within themselves. They no longer needed to depend on God to give them the power. They had been given the power they needed to accomplish this stuff. They now have it. They trust in that. I have the power to cast out demons. But that's not how it works. This, uh, this is why, for example, this so-called wisdom that is often shared in TV shows and movies is so silly. Someone is always, almost every show has somebody who says, you just have to have faith. Faith itself has no power. Faith is not a power. It's not some kind of force in the universe that can be harnessed and channeled and used to do things. Faith must be in something. And the something that our faith needs to be in is the Lord. We need to continually trust in the source of the power, the Lord, the giver of the power, the Lord. It all comes from Him all the time. Imagine for a moment that you are a microwave oven. Your purpose in life is to cook stuff that is put inside of you. And you've been doing a great job doing that. Someone opens you up, puts a plate of leftovers in you, hits the button, and you buzz and you cook the food. 
The electric power that courses through you, enabling you to cook food, it comes from outside of you. It's not something that you possess or a thing that is inherently part of you. If you unplug yourself from the electric outlet, thinking that this power is something that you have, you will discover very quickly that what you used to do with little effort is now impossible for you to do. Without the power source, you are nothing but a box with a door. It's the same for us as human beings with the power of God. We must remain in Him, abiding in Him, connected to Him, living in Him, depending on Him, trusting in Him. In Mark's telling of this story, Jesus says to the disciples that they need prayer. And this is another way of saying that we need the power of God. That the power is not in ourself. The way that we plug into the power of God and stay dependent upon the power of God and keep our confidence in the power of God and act with the power of God is through prayer. Not praying shows that our confidence rests somewhere else other than with the Lord. Owen Carr said it this way, a day without prayer is a boast against God. Jesus said, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Moving a mountain was a proverbial phrase referring to the overcoming of a great difficulty. Jesus is not talking about the literal transforming of the topography of the land. Although the power of God is certainly able to move a literal mountain around on the face of the earth if that was determined to be necessary. It says nothing will be impossible for you Obviously, this promise is contingent upon God's will, just like similar promises that are made in other places of the Bible. God is not granting you and me God-mode power to do whatever we want in this world. I mean, can you imagine what a terrifying, chaotic place this would be in a matter of seconds if God were to allow just one of us to have that kind of power? 1 John 5.14, John wrote this. He says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. Paul expresses this in another way in his letter of 1 Corinthians that uh, is interesting. In 1 Corinthians 13.2, You've probably read this verse before, but not really connected it with this story. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, Paul says, If we have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. In other words, acting and the love of the Lord is essential for all that we do. And what is this love being talked about? 
verse 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul actually describes this love when he says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So pulling all of this together, when our faith is in the power of the Lord rather than ourself, and we are in relationship with Him, connected to Him as the power source, and we are seeking to do His will His way, expressing His love, then mountains will move. Verse 22 moves us to the next little story here. It says, When they came together in Galilee, he, Jesus, said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Jesus again tells his disciples what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. He will be killed, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Now, a couple of observations here. First, it says the disciples are filled with grief when he tells them this. And we notice that they're no longer arguing with him now about what is going to happen. You might remember the last time in Matthew 16, Peter went, hey, 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 Jesus, I don't think you know what you're talking about. The Messiah is to be a ruling king, powerful, none of the suffering stuff. And you remember Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. said, Peter, you don't have the things of God in mind, but the things of human beings. Well, they're not arguing with him anymore about what he's saying. They appear to be accepting what Jesus is saying now about his fate of being killed. The second observation is they are continuing, though, to ignore Jesus' prediction of his resurrection from the dead. This is something they will be oblivious to until after it happens. He says on the third day he will be raised to life. They don't hear that. But when it happens, Jesus says their grief will turn to joy. And so it will because it will change everything. Verse 24, this last story in the chapter begins. It says, After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? So the issue here involves the paying of the half shekel or two drachma, which is equivalent amount, the temple tax, which all Israelite men, 20 years old uh, and older, paid each year for the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. Apparently this tax is due and the collectors are inquiring if Jesus is planning to pay the tax or not. 
And Jesus, in verse 25, says, Yes, Peter says he does. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. He says, What do you think, Simon? He asked, From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. Jesus Jesus uses this for a teaching opportunity. And And he turns this really into a parable about himself and the kingdom. Does a king collect taxes from his own children or from others? And the obvious answer to the question is, from others. The king doesn't ordinarily collect any taxes from his own children. They would be exempt from paying taxes. They are part of the king's family. So verse 27, though, Jesus says, But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Well, I would really like Jesus to do that for me, to pay my taxes. A four drachma coin would be enough to pay both Peter and Jesus' taxes, this temple tax. Well, what's the point of this story? As I said a moment ago, it's, it's not really a story. It's not really a story about paying taxes. It's a parable that teaches us something about Jesus and the kingdom of God. God the Father is the king to whom the taxes need to be paid. But his son, Jesus, is exempt from paying the tax. And in this, we we have a veiled declaration by Jesus that he is God the Son. Secondly, this parable, it looks forward to the day when the whole temple system will be replaced by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus and the new covenant of grace that will be established through Jesus. Those who are followers of Jesus and have put their faith in him as their Savior, they are children of God and exempt from the tax. The tax is the obligation to the law of God and the system of works for earning one's salvation. Instead, under the new covenant, we are the children of the king, exempt from tax. We've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So in the same way that Jesus pays Peter's tax for him in this story, Jesus has paid our tax. Our obligation to the law of God and the penalty that we are guilty of for breaking the law of God. He paid our tax by his death on the cross. And we are now no longer the others In the story, the foreigners, the strangers, the outsiders, the subjects, we are his children, exempt from the tax. In closing, 
Have you put your faith in Jesus as your Savior? Are you following Jesus Christ with your life? Do you know you are exempt from the tax now because you are a child of God? See, we're not automatically a child of God just because we're a human being. That's how the term child of God is commonly used in our culture, but that's not the way the term is used in the Bible, and that's not what the Bible means when it talks about a child of God. In the Bible, only those who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior, putting their faith in Him, trusting his death on the, in His death on the cross as a sacrifice for their sins, believing in His resurrection from the dead, and who are following Him now with their life, are the children of God and exempt from the tax. The tax, it's going to come due for every person who's not a child of the King. When we pass from this life, none of us are able to pay that tax on our own. But that's not the end of the story. The tax, the penalty for breaking the law of God and living our life on our own terms rather than seeking Him is to be separated from Him forever and denied entry into heaven, but it doesn't need to be like that for you and me. The invitation to have your tax paid and to be adopted into his family as his child, being forever exempt from the tax. It's extended to every one of us. There's that familiar verse, John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. I want to encourage you today to ask Jesus Christ into your life and begin following Him. You can do that with a simple prayer. And you can become His child, exempt from the tax. Let's bow our heads. If you've never received Jesus Christ and today you go, yeah, I'm ready to do that. I'm ready to follow Jesus and trust in him rather than myself. Pray this simple prayer with me before we close. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Forgive me for my sins and living my life my way rather than your way. I'm going to follow you from now on. Come into my life and make me into the person you want me to be. Father, I pray for all of us here today. We thank you that you have adopted us as your children, that we are kids of the king now and exempt from tax, free from the penalty of sin and death through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you. I pray that you would go with us this week, Lord. Fill us with hope and joy as we are reminded of who you are and who we are as your children. In Jesus' name. Amen.